Good morning, family. I trust that everybody's doing really well. We've been having a really wonderful time in the book of Hebrews, and uh, to be honest with you, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not an easy book to preach through. There's a lot of complexities in it, but it's been so wonderful for me, and I've just really so enjoyed. And uh, last week's message really felt like you know, it was a, a pertinent, as Ben said, and something that as I got feedback through the week and just our team processed also really felt that it's something that we have to mark. And so for today, I'm going to carry on with Hebrews 8 and 9, which is according to the schedule that we have to try and work through the book. But um, I'm going to do it by, by actually going a little bit back towards where we were last week. And uh, I said to you last week, I actually preached the first half of this message and want to therefore just continue and, and, and land some of the things. So um, if you haven't heard last week's message, then I'll make sure that today will make sense on its own. But like Ben said, I would encourage you to go and uh, share and, and listen to that message also. I was recently reflecting just on the, the reality of life and how we move on and grow in our lives. And I was reminded of what it was like for us when in around 2004, what life was like, and particularly life on a Sunday. Um, our youngest, Ewan, is here with me this morning, was born in April 2004. And that meant that at that stage, we now had four children between the age of baby zero, you know, month old or two months or three months, and five and a half years, roundabout. At that time, we had the wonderful privilege of uh, having been in the process of planting the South Church. We were already having morning services at that time, so you know that required quite a lot happening and everything going on. We were also at the same time running a community group in our house, which is about 40 people um, that were coming, lots of young kids, and filled every space and room in our house on a regular basis. We were also at that time still on staff here. I had the pastoral responsibility for about 400 people that worshipped here but lived in a particular part of Centurion. Um, I was part of the vision team, Natasha and I, here, and so had responsibilities here and were running in between these two things going on all at the same time having these four little characters in our house. So you can imagine what a Sunday morning was like. How many of you know that Sunday morning sometimes can be your most trying morning of the week before you go to church, uh, especially if you've got little ones? And so we'd have to get up quite early in the morning to make sure that we were ready on time for church, you know, often had to help set up, open things, and get everything ready for everybody else that would come to church. And so that meant waking up the boys early and then starting the routine of, you know, feeding them, dressing them, and keeping them clean before you got to church. Because the problem was by the time you've got the last one dressed, the first one is already dirty again. And you can't go to church and the pastor and then everybody thinks, what's going on in the pastor's house? Don't they clean their children or whatever? So we had a bit of a divide and conquer strategy, Natasha and I. She would do the small ones and I would do the bigger ones. And uh, so, you know, you would get them, set them down, eat, give them their food, whatever, you know, stage they were at eating. Give the food quickly, clean up, then wash them, get them clean, dress them, put them in front of the television. And say, sit still, don't move. Because it would be amazing. How by the time you get ready and we're saying, okay, now we want to go, then you look at them and suddenly they're not in the same clothes as they were just a little while ago because one of them decided that he wants to wear something different today and it doesn't really work and you can't wear that to church. It doesn't really look good. And uh, then you have to you know, scramble and, and then you find the other one. He went and found something somewhere and he's now dirty all again. And 
So our agreement was we never spoke to one another Sunday mornings. We just each applied ourselves to our task, and then we got to church, and uh, we just hope we made it through the day. And I remember that with a bit of fondness and a lot of trauma, perhaps, and a lot of just like deep thankfulness that I'm not in that stage of life anymore. Anybody that's here with children that are under five, can we give them a round of applause and just say, well done for being here today and, uh, you know, just making it. I look at the Dlaminis and uh, having four children also, praise the Lord. But you know what is wonderful? This morning at around quarter past five, I woke up and I heard our front gate opening. And I was like, first, I didn't quite know what time it was. And when I looked, then I realized uh, it's Keenan, our second son. He's off to church because he's, got a, he's on duty and he has to be there just after five already. And guess what? I didn't dress him. I didn't clothe him. I mean, I didn't feed him. I didn't tell him when to be there. He drove himself. He got everything sorted. Now, if you know Keenan, he's got this long hair. He even combed that himself. I hope he did. Because when they were small, one of the things that we did to make sure that life was possible is I cut their hair. I didn't have money to get somebody else to cut their hair. So I got a clipper and I cut their hair. Number four, all round. So if you, many of you will remember us from those days. We had these four little blonde head. Well, they thought they were blonde because their hair was so short. These little blonde head boys with just buzz cuts. And that was done, first of all, because financially it just was better. But also, secondly, we didn't have time to comb anybody's hair. They had to just, you know, but it was like blue murder every time I cut their hair about once a month. Second week also, I had the privilege of cutting nails. And so there would be an evening where I would, we would bath them. And after then bathing, I would sit them down and I would cut nails. And after I've cut my own nails and all of them, I did a hundred nails at a time. I think I deserve some like, recognition for that. You know, I, I should be a, some open up a nail salon how to cut children's nails or something. Because you know when those little fingers and then you've got to cut so carefully and they're moving and jerking all around. Otherwise you end up with a four point, little point of a finger in, your, in the bag and you're like, oh, on the floor. How did that happen? And it was just, I mean, life was wonderful. But now they dress themselves. By half past seven this morning, Ethan was at church because he was on duty. Ewan is here with me. Liam's here with me. I just told them I'm leaving at a certain time. I left at half past seven also. And they were ready. I didn't have to feed them. I didn't have to dress them. Guess what? Even the clothes they have, they bought themselves. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that like, you know, so wonderful? So any of them is ever dressed in a way that you think, I don't know if that really works. That's their own fault. I've got nothing to do with it anymore. Some of them is under the influence of their mother also. But, you know, we, we won't say anything. But isn't that the joy of life? We grow up. Or we should, at least, grow. I mean, if I still had to wake them up in the morning and say, you're duty at church now. You've got to make sure you're there on time. Then something's not right. We grow up. But not only do we grow up in the natural and in our lives, or should grow up, we should grow up in the things of the Spirit also. We should be advancing. We should be moving. And, and I want to talk a little bit about that from Hebrews 8 and 9 this morning, and which is a follow-on. So here and there, I'm going to touch on things that I did touch on last week, but I really didn't have time to put, you know, expound them uh, good enough. In Hebrews 8, verse 3, we read the following. 
Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for they are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises, for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no, pl no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said to the people, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and, and with the people of Judah. Now, God doesn't make mistakes. Amen? Do you believe that? God doesn't learn. God doesn't know more now than he did at any other point in the past. Because God is omniscient. He knows everything. He's not developing. He's not becoming more, you know, complete in his understanding. So how is it that we have something here that God instituted, the old covenant, which God then later says, this is not good enough. It's not working. I need to replace it with something better. How did that happen? If God doesn't make mistakes and God doesn't learn, that means the only option left for us is the old covenant is something that God instituted knowing that it wasn't going to do what it's supposed to do. Knowing that it would fail. Now why would you do something that you know is going to fail and still do it? Because sometimes that's the only way we learn. Have you ever said to your children, now go ahead and do it. If you really want to, now go. Do it. It's fine. Go for it. Because you know it's going to fail. And so the scripture says in, I think it's Galatians if I remember correctly, where it says the old covenant, the old testament, the law was a tutor. They're established to teach us something. And the best way the law could actually teach us to what it needed to teach us was to fail. This is an interesting way that God is using to instruct us in who he is. Now, what was the idea what was the law supposed to teach us? What it was supposed to teach us simply was how to relate to God, how to have relationship with God. God being God, the creator of everything, the holy, the pure, the almighty God, created us to have relationship with us. But we rebelled against him, we broke away from him, and we fell into sin and into corruption. And therefore, our sin became a wall between us and God. We could no longer have relationship with him. But God said, I want to have a relationship with you. So he began to teach us how to have relationship with him. How do unholy mortal beings have a relationship with an holy immortal God? So he instituted the old covenant. The old covenant was established through a process where God started saying to us, within these rules and parameters and laws, you can begin to again venture into a relationship with me. And he gave it to a specific group of people, the, the sons of Abraham, the Israelites, and he said, through you, I will teach all the nations how to have a relationship with me, but I'm going to begin with you. And so he gave them the law. 
As part of the law was not only the rules of how to have a relationship with God, but the places, the ways to have a relationship with God. And one of the key ways, or places, sorry, that God said, this is the space where you will have a relationship with me, where we will meet each other. He set up a holy, separate place where a holy God could come down and meet with an unholy people. He created a sanctified, sacred space. And that space eventually became known as the tabernacle, and later it became the temple. And God set up all sorts of rules and, and instructions and structures and, and symbols and, and altars and washing basins and, you know, priesthood and people that would govern and, you know, fulfill that space, all to create a space to say, this is going to come sort of our neutral ground where I can meet with you and you can meet with me. Because I'm a holy God, you're an unholy people. We can't just meet. I have to create a space. And so God created this space. This beautiful, magnificent space where God interacted with the people and met with the people. Now, if you read some of the stories of, for instance, when the, when the temple was inaugurated with Solomon, you read this trumpets and you read like this powerful, you know, sometimes there was shakings of the earth and smoke and thunder every time that God met with people. It was a magnificent event. But then God says eventually, as wonderful as that is, the, the gold of the temple, think about the gold and the wood that was overlaid, the gopher wood that was covered with, with gold and the, and the seven you know, st lamp stand of the candles and the, the, the beautiful altar and the, the basins of washing and the angels, the cherubim, the ark of the covenant, all these fantastic, beautiful things. God says, it's just not good enough. It's not doing it. Now, the scripture tells us that those things came about, the, the way that if you look at the tabernacle and then look at the temple, why did it look like that? Because it was a representation of what was seen in heaven. It was a copy. It was supposed to communicate to us. This is how God meets in heaven and with people, and so he created a space that represented that. And this temple, for instance, ultimately became the ultimate representation of what that looked like. But as the scripture says here, it was a copy of that which was the eternal. So we have this temporary copy on earth of that which is to be eternal. But at some point, God says, this copy is not good enough. It's not communicating what it should be, and it's also not doing the job of really bringing me and my people back together again. It's very limited in what it can do. And so God said, now I'm going to replace that old meeting place that is part of the old covenant, the old way of trying to reconnect with God, and I'm going to give you a new covenant. And so in this new covenant, God says, now how are you going to meet with me? Where are you going to meet with me? If in the old covenant we needed this kind of neutral space, what will be the space in the new covenant where we will meet with him? So God says this is going to be completely different because what I'm going to introduce in the new covenant is not going to be a copy of heaven. It's going to be the exact of what you will have in heaven, you will have on earth also. Because ultimately the meeting with God is not about a place, it's about a person. It is about meeting with God. It's not about rituals. You see, in the Old Covenant, 
there was the recognition that we were fallen and sinful. So we needed certain things to help us deal with our fallenness, deal with our brokenness, bring us to a space where we, where we would be cleansed enough so that we can meet with God. Now God says, I want to do something that it will be far better than that which you had in the old covenant. I'm going to create a way where you can meet with me completely, with no separation, with no mediation needed. You see, in the old covenant, you could only meet with God through mediation. So once a year, the high priest, and that's what it references here, the high priest would go through washings and sacrifices and you know, all sorts of things and preparation so that once a year, only the high priest could step into the very presence of God on behalf of the people. Now God says, as wonderful as that is, it's just not gonna do it, it's not good enough. I, would want, I want to create a space where every one of my people can meet with me whenever it is possible. And what will be possible is all the time. No more mediation needed, meeting through a priest or a high priest. No more needing that I can't go into the presence of God, but where I can step boldly into God's presence. And God said, this is what I want to do. And in that sense, the new covenant is therefore a far better representation of what heaven will be like. Because in eternity, what is the idea? Is that you and I can meet with God for eternity. Be in his presence for eternity. There's going to be no temple in heaven. There's going to be no tabernacles where you in heaven have to go and bring your sacrifices and everything before you can get to God. So therefore, this which we can now experience on earth is a better representation of that which is in heaven. Because in heaven, who will you meet with? You will meet with God. On earth, who do we meet with in the new covenant? Not the priest, not the high priest, but the better high priest, which is Jesus himself. We have access to him. So you and I need to understand that church as we know it today is not an extension of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. We are not in that same order anymore. That's what I spoke about last week. We are in a new order. Sometimes you, you'd hear Christians and, and Christian teaching and focus and emphasis, it's almost like we're trying to say, how do we copy that which was experienced in the tabernacle or in the temple in the church today? What are the symbolisms? What are the principles? What are the, the, the beautiful, wonderful things here? Because the, the reality was in this tabernacle and temple, they met with God. There were many times where the presence, the very presence of God, the Shekinah glory filled the temple. So we want the same. We want God's presence. So perhaps we should learn from the tabernacle and the temple what to do so that we can have the same experience. And sometimes people go and study and want to understand all the meanings and the symbolism. Now I've studied all of that and it's fantastic. It's beautiful. It's worthwhile to learn. But not to copy. 
Because if you copy the Old Testament tabernacle and try and reproduce it in the New Covenant, you are doing exactly that which God said you can't do, you shouldn't do. Because he declared the Old Covenant insufficient and made a New Covenant, why would you want to go back and recreate the Old Covenant? Now again, I can learn from it because it's part of the story. The Old Covenant temple tabernacle points to Jesus. All the symbolisms and all the washings and the candles and the everything, if you, if you know who Jesus is, then you understand why those things are. But now you want to go to the tabernacle to learn about Jesus instead of going to Jesus to learn about Jesus. Do you understand? That's the, the challenge we have. If we are trying to reproduce and live in that same spirit, then I want to ask you, who brought their pigeons and their doves to be sacrificed this morning? Anybody? Ooh, we have a problem. Anybody brought a lamb or a goat? Anybody brought some vegetables? Anybody? No offerings? Nobody? Come on, people. Why did you not bring an offering? Aren't you glad that coming to church is not a bloody affair? Where you come to church and outside you come, you've loaded, you dropped your children off at C4G and then you come and you hop, you know, here's my little box with my dove in it. You give it to the pastoral team and they go, <laughs> chop their head off and then, you know, burn it. Ooh, lovely smell here at church. You know, and we only do that on spring day. Then we bride together, but that's a whole different story. Why don't we do that? Because in the old covenant, this was the way you dealt with the sin so that you could meet with God. We don't bring sacrifices to God anymore. Why not? Because one sacrifice was made. And through that sacrifice, we are all saved. Saved meaning my sins are forgiven. And I will read you the scripture just now. My sins are forgiven. I'm declared holy and righteous and therefore I can meet with God. Remember on the day when the Jesus died, what happened in the temple? In the temple, there was this veil between God and man. And th that was the veil that only the high priest could pass through once a year. What happened to that veil on the day Jesus died? It was torn from the top to the bottom. God said, never again do you have to go through anything to get to me. You can now have direct access to me because of what Jesus did. So we don't pay, we don't give offerings anymore in that same way. What, what are our offerings now today? What is our offering? What is your offering today? You are your offering. You don't bring an offering, you are an offering. And I'll read you the scripture. But in this new covenant, I have relationship with Jesus because his blood has cleansed me, the, the blood of the animal that could only do it for a short space of time and within certain conditions and certain times has been done away with. I can now once go to Jesus. He washes me with his blood. I'm cleansed, I'm forgiven. Now I give him my life. Not to... So my sacrifice is a response to him. It is my worship. It is my prayer. And this is the new covenant. Hebrews 8 verse 10. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. 
What was the original covenant with Abraham? I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will live among you. Through you, Abraham, I will raise up a nation, and through this nation, I will bless all the nations of the earth. What did that mean? I will begin to live with you again. I will show you how to have relationship with me. But through you, I want to show all the nations how to relationship with me. The fulfillment of that promise came when Jesus came and said, there is no, there's no longer an obstacle. There's no longer mediation needed. You don't need a high priestly system. You don't need a tabernacle. Every person can now come to Jesus directly through me. And, and the, the New Testament church had some discussions about this because some were saying, no, if you want to come to Jesus, you've got to come through the tabernacle first. You've got to go to the temple, and then from the temple you go to Jesus, and then you can go to God and have a relationship with God. And the, the, the council of the church of the, in Jerusalem of the New Testament said, no, that's not how it works. We will not ask the Gentiles to first go to the temple. The Gentiles can come to Jesus directly because that has been fulfilled. So I deeply appreciate and learn and read the old covenant and understand. But I understand that it points to Jesus. And in Jesus was a fulfillment of that. It doesn't exclude that. But all of that was about Jesus in the first place. So we come to Jesus. This new covenant. Now why is the new covenant ultimately better than the old covenant? Because what the old covenant could do is it could work on our exterior Behavior, but it couldn't change our hearts. Here, uh, the, the writer of the Hebrews says, and I will write my law on your minds and on your hearts. It will no longer be an exterior thing. It will now be imprinted in you. So the old covenant could never do that. Couldn't change you. Couldn't make you different. But the new covenant can. But why did God then... Not go directly for the new covenant. Because we had to learn this. This is a very fundamental lesson to learn. Because in that lesson was that we could not do it in ourselves. The original sin is pride. I can do this on my own. God had to deconstruct that. Show us how that doesn't work. And he also had to create time. So that he could establish all the conditions and everything needed so that he could establish this new covenant. So there was use. The old covenant wasn't bad. It wasn't wrong. Romans tells us. It served a purpose. One of the purposes it served is it slowed down the corruption of humanity. Remember God created Adam and Eve. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in, their, in the first generation, we have the first murder take place. And then sin begins to escalate. As human beings, because of our brokenness, our nature that has fallen into sin, we have become extremely creative with sinning. We know how to sin. And we develop new ways to sin every, every other day. And so that evolved so quickly that by the time we get to Genesis 4, and if you're following on the reading plan, you would have read this, God says, I have to put a stop to this. This is going haywire. Now again, God knew. That's why he put certain laws in place that this would happen. So by Genesis 4, it tells us that humanity is so broken, so rebellious, that God sends a flood to, to, to stop this march of sin, this, this deep like, um, regression of humanity and falling into sin. Now he has to stop it so that he can have time to establish this way of salvation to bring us, to restore us to him. So he, he halts it, he stops it. 
And he keeps one family left that he has relationship with to begin with again. And he says, I'm never going to do this again. But I need to have time to work with you. So that leads to over a process to where God gives the law through Moses. Now, what was one of the purposes of the law? It, what it did is it halted people's regression into deeper sin. Not halted, it slowed it down, sorry. Because what the law does is it says, thou shalt not murder. It can't change your murderous heart, but it can at least stop you from murdering somebody. And do you think that's worthwhile? Because when it says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, and it gives you, it's at least stopping us from just collapsing into sin, and it's slowing things down. So that in that time period, God can do the work of establishing a nation through which he will bless all the, uh, nation, uh, all the nations of the earth. And through that nation, he will bring about a Messiah. So he's just slowing things down. It's like in our very own nation. Law is a good thing. Amen? Law, our laws of our nation can't change people's hearts. But it certainly stops you from acting on some of the things that's in your heart. We have people in this nation that... Their own conscience doesn't stop them from breaking into your house, but perhaps the law can stop them from breaking into your house. So it slows down. It doesn't change the condition of the heart. It doesn't ultimately stop the sin from happening, but it does slow things down. So it's good. But we have a better way, a far better way that comes to us through Jesus, that says, I am now going to come and not just slow sin down or manage sin. I'm going to save you from sin. I'm going to remake you, become a new person that will not live towards the creativity of sin, but will actually live towards righteousness and honoring God and pleasing God. And he invites us to go deeper with him. Now, that's an interesting phrase that we so often use when we say, I want to go deeper with God. Or we say, ooh, that person's a deep Christian. What do we mean when we say that? Going deeper with God. Because in one sense, I want to say that we are all equally deep with God because we are all equally deep in His grace. What I mean by that is, not one of us can be more saved than another person. Amen? There's one sacrifice, one Jesus, one pouring out of the blood, one cleansing that happens through faith. I didn't pay for mine any more than you paid for yours. We all got it for free. So we are equally saved. Amen? You can line every Christian up across the planet and none of them will be deeper saved than another one. But yet the scripture, and we talk about going deeper, so what do we mean? Ezekiel 47 is an interesting prophetic picture. In Ezekiel 47, it's a well-known prophecy from the Old Testament given to you by Ezekiel. We have this picture of the new covenant that God communicates through Ezekiel. Now, he uses the, 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 the symbolism of the time that Ezekiel would have been familiar with. So, in Ezekiel 47, it begins with the temple. If we read verse 1, it says the following. The man brought me back to the entrance of the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east 
of the temple because the temple faced, faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. So imagine the temple. What is the temple? It's the meeting place with God. So he says, at this place where we meet with God, something's happening at this meeting place. And it seems like out of somewhere in the temple, it's like a well opened up or, a, or some fountain. And there's this water bubbling up in the temple. And if you're standing outside the temple at the door of the temple, you see this water starting to run out the, 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 the door. Anybody ever had your water left on and then the bath overflowed? or the basin, or something, and you got home, and there was a water, there was a river coming out this, the door of your house. Isn't that wonderful? So that's what we see, the water is coming out. So he says, there's something happening in this place where we're meeting with God, and this water is coming out, and then he describes what's happening. He says, this water that comes out of the temple is forming a river. At, at the temple, the river, the water that just comes out of the door is about ankle deep. But if you go a thousand cubits further down the river, it starts to go knee deep. So this water is increasing in its power, its impact, its effect. You carry on another thousand cubits, it starts its waist deep. You carry on another thousand cubits, then you can't even stand in it, you've got to swim. Because the water is getting deeper. And then if you keep following the water, he tells us what happens ultimately with this river. In Ezekiel 47, verse 8 to 9. This water flows towards the eastern region and goes down in the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water, will becoming, water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live there wherever the river flows. There will be a large number of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. So at the end of this river is the Dead Sea. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Death. And this death is being transformed into life by this river that begins where man meets with God. So men meeting with God causes something to grow ever deeper and deeper and deeper and more powerful and stronger and stronger until it eventually reaches the lost, the broken, the dead, and it brings life. That's the new covenant. That's the prophetic picture of the new covenant. So what does that mean for you and me? So this is the invitation. God is saying, step in. And meet with me. Come and meet with me. I have given you the new covenant in the blood of Christ. If you believe in me, you can become part of me. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. You can step into the river. Now the moment I step into the river, I'm saved. I'm no longer in the desert. I'm no longer in the death. I am now in the river of life. I'm saved. And any person in that river, from here to where it falls into the Dead Sea, is saved. But not everybody is experiencing the power of the river the same way. You see, because when I'm here in the river, I'm saved. But the river covers me to my ankles. Now... Please, this is where you've got to be careful with the analogy. Because to be saved is to be immersed. That's why we baptize people by going under the water, up out of the water. I've died, you know, so I'm immersed. But in terms of the effects, the power of this river, 
the transformation it has in my life, I've got to go deeper. In essence, actually, it's not me going deeper. I've got to allow the river to go deeper into me. So here I am. I'm, I'm standing in the river. I'm saved. But at that stage, the reality is I'm standing on my own two feet. I'm still pretty much in control. I'm still pretty much, you know, like I'm not in charge because I've given that to Jesus, but I'm standing on my feet. Now, the moment you start going further down the river, how many of you have ever been in a river flowing fast? It just needs to reach your knees and it will knock you off of your feet. But perhaps you're strong enough and you can still sort of like, you've got good footing in you, but you're starting to feel the power of this river. But you, you're standing. You go down further. Now, you, now you're waist deep. Now it's getting serious, man. This is, this is troublesome. I'm starting to lose control here. Ultimately, when you are in the space where this water is deeper than what you can stand, you've lost control. This water now takes you where it wants you to go. And isn't that a picture of our journey with Jesus? That's what it means to grow up. You see, I enter the river, and I'm saved, and I'm in the grace of God fully. I'm only here because of the grace of God. I didn't deserve it like nobody else deserved this. We are all equally saved by the grace of God. But I've got some work to do in terms of learning what it means to completely surrender to this river. And that's the invitation. That's the journey where the Spirit takes me, and He starts saying, come with me. Come. Come. Follow with me. If we read Romans 12, verse 1 to 2, so such a familiar portion of Scripture. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So our worship is no longer bringing sacrifices to pay for the atonements of our sin. Our worship is our sins have been forgiven. We have been declared holy and pleasing to God. So if I'm ankle deep in this river, or if I can't swim anymore, I am, everybody in that river is holy and pleasing unto the Lord. Amen? Because that's imparted to us by Christ. That's given to us. In the river, holy and pleasing, all of us. So I don't want to go deeper because I want to earn my place. I want to go deeper because that's the way the river goes. So now I'm saved. My spiritual worship he says, is to offer my life as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice is the person that says, okay, I'm ankle deep. Help me, Lord, I want to go knee deep. Every day I want to give more to you. I want to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So, okay, Lord, I'm going deeper. Because that's becoming more and more real and more and more practical in my life. I'm surrendering to you. I'm offering you my life. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. One of the things that happens as I progress in the river, here, I'm saved, but I've still got a lot to learn about what is God's good and pleasing and perfect will. The further I go down this river, the more I understand God's good and pleasing and perfect will. Because the Holy Spirit teaches me. And by the time I get here, it's like, Lord, you do with me what you want. Less of me, more of you. 
And that's the journey we go on. Now, those two words are very important in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. The word conform means to be molded, to adapt a pat- to adopt a pattern, to be shaped by or pressed into looking like something. That's what it means to be conformed. So what the old covenant could do is it could conform you. It could make you look like something. As the temple was built after the pattern of that which was in, the, in heaven, it was a conforming of that. So, so it's like, I want to look like a child of God. What do I do to look like a child of God? That's conforming. I'm shaped to be like something else. Transforming, however, is a very different deal altogether. Transforming, the word transforming comes from two words that are joined together in the Greek. The word meta and the word morpho. How many of you have heard the word meta? If you have Facebook, you know the word meta. They renamed themselves meta, which I think is a little bit of an overstatement of their own value and purpose. Because I'll tell you now what the word meta means. So it's the word meta joined with the word morpho. The word meta means to change after having been with. So I'm changed because I've been with somebody or something. I'm becoming like somebody. I've been with them, and I'm changing to become like them. But it doesn't just mean that. It also means morpho, which is changing changing form in keeping with an inner reality. So, meta, I've been with somebody and I'm changing to become more like them. Morpho, but I'm not changing to outwardly look like them. I'm changing to adopt their character and their essence of their being. I'm becoming like them in who I am. So, I'm not just copying them externally. I'm becoming them. So, if I conform... If I'm a Christian that conforms, I'm a Christian that tries to look like I'm a Christian, which means I try to look like Jesus. If I'm transformed, I become Jesus, made in his image to look like him more and more. Not becoming Jesus like I'll become God or whatever. You can't do that. But to be restored to the image of God, to represent God. And that happens inside first. That's why the journey of discipleship is a lifelong journey because the change happens here first. I don't change externally first, I change internally first. Now sometimes I need some external things to happen. Like if you get saved and and your Christian community tells you stop sleeping around. Now you may not feel inside like you want to do that but it will be good for you to stop because what does that mean? It buys time And it stops the slide of corruption in your life. But that in itself won't change you. It just gives you time for God to come and work inside of you. To change your insights, your reasons, your whys, your your desires, your everything gets changed. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in us. The Holy Spirit is the power of Jesus to come and transform us. Make us wholly, completely different. How? Because we've been with God. We've been with Jesus. How do we change? We change because we pray, we worship, we study the scripture, we come into community, we share our faith, we live within 
the context of God's truth. And the more we do that, we present ourselves to him every day. I come and I say, yes, I am. I'm a living sacrifice. I surrender myself to you. I have the possibility of beginning to be transformed. Now, last week I shared with you quickly, and I've run out of time already. So the critical journey of how they've studied and seen that how Christians change in their six processes of this critical journey. And the important thing in this critical journey is to to recognize, if you read up about it, and, and there it is on screen, it is to move from this standing in my own strength in God kind of thing to actually becoming swept away by God. Completely surrendered to Him. And one of the key things to be able to do that, and in the book they comment about many people, Christians particularly, at some point, as they're progressing down this river of of allowing the Lord to take them deeper, stop and don't go further. And one of the reasons is not because they don't want to go further or not even because they're not trying to go further. It's because they don't know how to change and keep changing so that you can go further. And one of our challenges in life is we don't have a working understanding or a a working change process active in our life consistently so that we keep changing. The life of a follower of Christ is Psalm 84. Blessed is the man whose heart is set on pilgrimage. I will forever be changing, moving down this river. I will never get to the other side. I'm always changing. But that means I've got a process of change that's active in my life. It's like the yeast. You put yeast in the dough, it just keeps working. It's like I have to have this process. And one one major way that this process works in our life is repentance. Repentance is a constant change process that we are in. Now, repentance gets me into the river in the first place. Because here I am standing on the bank of the river, you know, standing on my own two feet, not caring about God or anything, and then... The Spirit speaks to me or I hear a message or somebody prays with me and I say, Lord, I ask you to forgive my sin. I repent of trying to live my life in my own strength. I step into the river. I repent. Now I'm in the river and the river starts moving with me and one of the ways the river starts moving with me and drawing me deeper is the Holy Spirit begins to speak to me and the Holy Spirit says, you know when you said that to somebody, that doesn't reflect my character. That doesn't show that you've been with me. That's not the transformed life. Don't do that. And I go, Lord, I'm so sorry. I go to the person, I say, you know, when I spoke like that, that's not right. Please forgive me. I repent. Every time I repent, I go further. But we all face times where we have to choose. Am I going to repent or am I going to cover up? When somebody comes and says, you know, when you said that, that wasn't right. You go, no, no, but you don't understand. You misunderstood me or, you know, I was just tired or no, it's your problem or whatever. And I cover up, I don't own. Then I stop. And then sometimes I even start going backwards again. I climb back up the river. The river's flowing this way, but I've made a decision. I'm not going to continue down this path because I'm starting to lose control. I want to stay in charge, so I'm going to stay here. and, 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 And then we don't change. I'm still saved. Still a child of God, still forgiven. But now I'm not going deeper because I'm not prepared to own up and why wouldn't I own up pride what is the original sin pride what got me out of the river in the first place pride now I'm in the river but I'm acting like I'm out of the river 
And so God invites us to continue to ever go deeper with him. The last scripture and then I'm finished. In uh, Hebrews 9 verse 28, it says the following. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring what? Salvation to those who are waiting for him. So here's an interesting concept for you. Jesus died once on the cross for what? For salvation, to save us. Here. But Jesus will come again in the future sometimes to do what? To save us. So am I saved or am I not saved? If I gave my heart to Jesus here and I believed in the work of the cross and put my faith, am I not saved? So why do I need this future where Jesus will come again and save me? Because right now I'm living my life here in this river between, and the whole world is in this space of between having been saved and one day will be completely saved. So my life in my journey with God is I've been saved. The only way I could get into this river is I was saved by Jesus. I'm saved. If I die today, I will be with God for eternity. I'm saved. Amen? Anybody else want to say, that's me too? Okay, I've lost you all. Okay, let's start again. Okay, you got some time? Fortunately for you, I've got somewhere to be. So I got here, I'm saved. Completely saved. But yet I'm looking forward to the day when Jesus will come to save me. What is that day? This day when Jesus will come again to save me is the time of his return where he will, remember we read earlier in Hebrews, it uses the picture of he will fold up this world. This broken world, this world that has fallen into sin, this world that has moved away from him, there will come a time in the future where this will be folded up and Jesus will be seen as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Now you can live in a world where you can choose not to serve Jesus. Then everybody will see that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that point, you can't get saved anymore. Salvation happens between happens there, and then I'm being saved, living the life of transformation here until Jesus comes, and then it's done. So every day, I'm in this river. Having been saved, I'm now in the river. Every day, I am being saved. What does that mean? Every day, the Spirit's working in me. I'm being transformed from the old pattern into the new. The old covenant couldn't do that. Only the new covenant can do that because it changes me on the inside. Writes the law of God on my heart. I'm in that process of being changed. And one day Jesus will come. And he will take with him, what does the scripture say? Who will be saved? Salvation to those who are waiting for him. There's going to come a day when Jesus is going to come. And say, this world is now fulfilled. I will wrap it up. Everybody that's been waiting for me. Come with me and live with me in perfection for eternity. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? Waiting is not this. Okay, Jesus, I'm waiting. Some people think waiting means just don't do anything. Or at least don't do anything wrong. We're just waiting. Waiting. Now, you know what waiting looks like? I'm in the river. Every day, Jesus, I surrender. I give you my life as a living sacrifice. 
I'm waiting for you, Jesus. I'm waiting. I've got my eyes on that. I know that's coming. But today I'm surrendering to you. I can't be living here, not surrendering, and then hoping to be Every day I'm surrendering because then I'm not afraid because right now there's a lot of stuff going on because of what's happening in the Middle East. People are like, oh, Jesus is coming. Are you ready for Jesus coming? Why must we be afraid of Jesus coming? That's the best news we've got. He's coming back. Fantastic. Praise Jesus. I'm not afraid because I'm ready. Five wise, wise virgins, five foolish virgins. What separated them? The five wise ones just knew how to wait longer. They were prepared to wait. They were prepared to go the distance, to suffer the inconvenience, to go beyond what was felt like it was a reasonable time to wait. I'm waiting. You know what my waiting is, Jesus? I'm so, I'm, here I am today, on the 25th of February. Here I am. I'm a living sacrifice. If Jesus comes today, guess what? I'm ready. If he doesn't come today, then tomorrow morning I get up and I say, Lord Jesus, thank you that I'm a living sacrifice, giving you my life. Change me to be more like you. And I want to be part of this river that pours into the, the, the world and saves the world. And I want my front line to be saved already. I'm in the river. So if Jesus comes tomorrow, guess what? I'm ready. If Jesus doesn't come tomorrow, guess what? I'll be ready the day afterwards because I'm a living sacrifice. And so it carries on. So I'm not afraid. There's no secret signs that you have to discern so that you will be ready. Ooh, you know, if the Christians only knew the symbolism of this, then they'll be ready. Okay, let me stop. Stop it. Stop it. Because to be ready requires one thing, to be waiting for the bridegroom. That's all. He's coming. I'm ready. I'm excited. But for me, he's already come today because I'm living with him now. Amen? Stand with me, please. Oh, there's so much in this scripture. I've already, already almost left out half of what I wanted to say again. So I'll see you at three o'clock. We'll have another session. Okay, praise no. God. Ah, you lie. You're just being nice. None of you will be here at three. Don't tell me stories. Let's pray together. Perhaps in this moment, you can say, Lord, I want to keep going deeper with you. I don't want to be stuck in some perpetual childhood, as Bob Mumford said, the eternal, eternal childhood of the believer. I want to grow up. I want to be ready. I don't have to reach the end of the river to be ready. I just need to be where I need to be because I've surrendered to you. So Lord, if, I'm, if I've gotten stuck in this journey and have stopped moving forward with you, today I choose to surrender. Here I am, a living sacrifice. Take me, Holy Spirit. I want to go to the waters that are scary. I want to go to the raging waters that is too deep for me to stand in, where you will be in finally in complete control. Take me, Holy Spirit. Lord, if I've been disobedient and have started moving the other way, forgive me and show me, Lord, how to continue to move forward with you. 
Come Holy Spirit. And then, Lord, if I've never gotten into this river, then today I want to choose to get into the river and say, I, I, I need you, Jesus. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, bring, make us aware of Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on our Savior, the only one that can save us. Change us, transform us. In Jesus' name. I pray that the Lord will bless you. I pray that you will experience the presence of the teacher, of the comforter, of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. That every day, every moment, you will experience his transforming power in your life. As he takes you deeper into that which the Lord has for you. And that we together as the church will be part of that river that brings healing to the nations. And we thank you for that. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And give you peace in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Amen. If you have never decided to follow Jesus, then won't you come to the front and say to our team, I want to give my life to Jesus. We've had a number of people do that over the last weeks. Just come and say, I want to get in this river. Let us pray with you. If you need prayer for something else, please come. And let us, our team would be so glad to pray with you. But let the Lord bless you and uh, be with you in this week. And remember to meet with Ben in the Connect Lounge, uh, in the foyer, if you want to find out more about our church. Bless you.